So I'll give a couple of readings this morning. I suppose what I'd like to emphasize is the uh, causal conditional nature of liberation and the causal conditional nature of non-liberation. And so when the Buddha uses this uh, word ahara, food, or as they sometimes translate as nourishment, you get the sense of this isn't really about what you are, it's what you feed on. Yeah. So that's interesting because there's a recognition or chitta, it's basically a kind of receptive openness, you could say. And if it's directed in the wrong way, it picks up the wrong stuff and it gets confused, agitated, irritated, driven out and suffers. If it's given the right food, it uh, blossoms and encourages and ripens. So this presentation of foods, it kind of, it, it angles how we understand our role or the role of our directive intelligence in this practice to be, directing ourselves towards absorbing, taking in the good food, discriminating what is bad food, knowing there's a choice and making the correct choices. So this then is a process of some intelligence. This is where the manas, the mano consciousness is plays its role. Mm. You know, we can discern, we can consider, we can think, we can bring to mind, oh, what's this? And then give a nudge, go that way. The chitta then inclines that way. Um, so this does respect these three intelligences. We have the bodily, the heart intelligence, and we might say the mental intelligence, with the energies, the body energy, which is breathing in and out, the life force that streams through the system, which we also receive, we don't can't create it, we receive that. The heart intelligence, which is associated with impulse, emotion, inclination, resistance, that emotive quality, jitta sankara, for good or for bad. And the mental intelligence, the ability to articulate abstract form concepts, remember, know, in this sense, we form an idea, and then we can give that message to the chitta, look that way. And in working these things out, we do bear in mind the need to govern and wisely attend to all of these faculties so they don't go out of balance. Particularly in a highly literate, wordy culture which we're in this time, I think we all recognize how powerfully we are saturated with words and ideas. Um, And we can take the word and the idea to be the reality rather than as the sign of where to go. So you look at the signpost and you think, that's it. No, that's the signpost to where to go. And no matter how many signposts you get, 
they won't work unless you go <laughs> where the signpost is pointing. You know? So you can create all kinds of signposts, metta, mindfulness, it's just as ideas, and they don't go anywhere. But they have their uses. The uses to sense what's that about, how is that, what's the direct experience of that, which is a jitta quality, linger in that, dwell in that. This is the role of the uh, thinking mind. Bear in mind the Buddha's uh, culture was primarily non-literate. There, there was a little bit of writing going on. Obviously there was singing and chanting, but that's a very different experience from reading. It's embodied, heard, felt, sensed. Very direct. Uh, so no, no words, no signs. Words used maybe just for business deals or something of that nature, written down. So you're not getting that input. What you're getting input from is nature. Animals, creatures, sickness, happiness, joy, death. Very primary experiences. Trigger the heart. In this instance, then, the Buddha's teaching is a tremendous lifeline because in this overwhelming presence of these powerful phenomena that touch the heart, there's a lifeline saying, if you put your attention that way, you could see there's a way out. You could diminish that. You come out of the sheer reactivity of the citta, its fear and its passion, into something more judicial and wise. And then things will grow. So in this series, I'd like you to um, suggest you acknowledge this quality called Yoniso Manasikara in the Pali, which is variously translated, appropriate attention, careful attention, systematic attention, wise attention. It actually means something like womb attention, womb attention, yoni, receptive womb. Uh, you know, which is, means it's deep, it's internal, it it wraps around things. It you know, it's not a superficial external phenomenon, action. It's a deep taking in, taking in and letting things gestate. It's about depth. So sometimes I call it deep attention. You go beneath the superficial appearance and the superficial reactivity of the jitta into something like, we say it has depth to it, we call it internal. How am I with this? Can I you know, open around this experience of ill will or agitation and fathom what it's about? And then there's this causal process of phenomena, uh, dhamma phenomena, um, Welling up. And here's a very evocative scripture in the numerical discourses book of the tens, and this will be 61. I'll just read extracts from it, it's rather lengthy. 
and repetitive. I say because the ignorance has a nourishment, a nutriment. And what is the nutriment? It is not without nutriment. So what is the nutriment for ignorance? It should be said the five hindrances. They too have a nutriment. What is their nutriment? Three kinds of misconduct. That means bodily, verbal and emotional. So bearing a mood of ill will. For example, carrying that mood in your heart is considered uh, misconduct. And I'm speaking on it or acting on it. Three kinds of misconduct have a nutriment. It's called non-restraint of the sense faculties. One goes out into the sensory description of phenomena. And uh, there's no depth to it because we're not go out, we don't really sense the inner activity of the heart. We get lost in the external appearance of things and we don't really fathom what's going on in the heart. Is this agreeable or disagreeable? Is it necessary? Is it conducive? No. So this sense restraint is an important cultivation to get a deeper response and relationship to the experience we're having. What is a nutriment for non-restraint? It should be said lack of mindfulness and clear comprehension. So if one is not mindful directly aware, sensing things, then there's a tendency for the attention to go out. Mindfulness holds a frame of reference, the impulsive, superficial hit is steered away from, we go to the more in-depth impressions and resonances. Lack of mindfulness and clear comprehension has a nutriment. Careless attention or superficial attention. So if one superficially attends to things, just the surface gloss or, you know, initial take on phenomena, people, things, then we get this lack of sustained, careful attention and, uh, and mindfulness. What is the nutriment for careless attention? It should be said lack of faith. If there's no faith, if there's no sense of something furthering, interesting, purposeful, uh, that I can sense, I can tune into, be for for my welfare, then if there isn't that fundamental arising of that interest, that faith, that willingness, that openness, then one, one doesn't get the the backing to maintain deep attention and just scatter over the superficial appearance of things. What is the nutriment for lack of faith? It should be said not hearing good Dhamma. 
And what is the nutriment for not hearing good Dhamma, not associating with good persons? <laughs> so it, it gets down from something fairly seemingly kind of remote and internal qualities of obstructiveness or ignorance of lack of lack of insight down to based upon just basically not not being with wise people people of integrity and he said this is how through not associated with good persons when that takes over you don't hear good dhamma that becomes Predominant, you don't get the faith. If that becomes predominant, you don't get the, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. Then he uses a metaphor. Just as when it's raining and the rain pours down in thick droplets on a mountain top, the water flows down along the slope and fills the clefts, gullies, and creeks. These becoming full fill up the pools. These becoming full fill up the lakes which fill up the streams, which fill up the rivers, which fill up the great ocean. So it's a sense in which, you know, what seems to be just, first of all, a not very significant thing, who you're hanging out with, can lead to some detrimental uh, directions in life. And conversely, associating with good persons. Um... So, to continue to be brief, true knowledge and liberation, the food of that is the seven factors of enlightenment. The food of that is four establishments of mindfulness. The food of that is good conduct. The food of that is restraint of the senses. The food of that, mindfulness and clear comprehension. The food of that is deep attention. The food of that is faith. The food of that is hearing good dharma. The food of that is associating with good persons. And similarly, the droplets, being with good people, hearing a good remark, an interesting turn of phrase, or even witnessing skillful actions, or even things they don't do, starts to model and shapes, just as the raindrops come down a little bit, influence begins to swell. And there's this process of like a current that picks up just through turning your attention in the right way and receiving what occurs. Turning your attention the right way and receiving deeply what happens. Mm. So yes, there's some, some action there. The active and the receptive. And the process begins to arise and swell for one way or another causes and conditions so the role of the identity is is minimal in fact perhaps kind of irrelevant
and I'm sure many of you are probably aware, you know, how fortunate it can be just one can hinge upon a fortunate meeting or listening to a talk or associating with a good person. I remember a friend of mine, he was a heroin addict and he was in London and I think somehow or another he occasioned across some Tibetan Lama over to Jolly, you know, Tibetan Lamas are generally pretty kind of jolly and laid back and relaxed and so forth. And just that encounter. Listen to what he's, what he's talking about. He couldn't understand it, but this is different, you know, meeting a good person. So then he began to pick up what, trying to pick up what he was saying and then getting down to it and doing a little bit of this, that and the other and eventually pulling out of addiction and turning things around in a very useful and beautiful way. became a quite devoted disciple and supporter. This kind of thing is not that unusual. If it wasn't been for that meeting, you might not have turned it around. So when there is such a meeting, that's a gift. That's a gift. And consider that. that It wasn't you did something, particularly, you might have been looking for something, but the fact that there was something, you picked it up. You know, one person in a thousand that you see in a day, you pick that one up. That's interesting. What's that, you know? So, something there. Jitta is attuned to something. You know, underneath all that mental activity and emotional turbulence, it's tuned to something and and picks it up. And once that starts, we get a sense that there's a something in here that's looking, searching, wanting, is not convinced by this superficial reality. Hmm. And it keeps, hmm. And that's how it starts. Faith arises. And careful attention comes to the fore, right at the hinge point between external factors and internal factors. So the external factors would be a good person, hearing or witnessing or being in the presence of good Dhamma. And through that, um, careful attention arises. You know, that, those two external factors trigger this very crucial hinge point. Uh, something causes one to attend carefully. What's this about? What's the meaning of this? What is life about? What am I doing? Pay attention. Careful attention. Don't just adopt slogans, but penetrate, deepen. And that remains... Uh, as a constant guide. So in this sutta we see as that process takes over, then there's a forming, careful attention begins to form um, a kind of a vessel, you could say. First of all, it's informed through 
mindfulness, that is what actually sustains attention rather than scatters. And it's attuned to mindfulness, as I've said before, is based upon some intuitive, some sense of there is a good, there is a beautiful, there is that which is unwholesome, put it aside, there is that which is beautiful, good, get attentive to that. Without foundation that comes from careful attention, we really see how the jitter is corroded or flared up or buried and how it's revealed and brightened because of careful attention. Therefore, one begins to linger and tune into that which is for one's welfare. So that's the beginning of the form, you could say. But what mindfulness will tend to do is push aside that's not relevant. So the outflowing of the sense faculties is seen as, no, that breaks the form, that breaks that container. It leaks out, I scatter, I fragment into past and future and this and that. and It becomes extremely confusing. So that awareness of the chitta can be held in some sort of tentative form of awareness which we know when it's there, we know when it's not there, when we're scrambled, and when it begins to become more coherent and stabilized. So the sense faculties are seen as areas where there has to be some moderation in what can happen through those channels. And this means that one's conduct becomes more prudent, more careful, more judicious, more, more tuned in. So it starts to form, and then the establishments of mindfulness, which you're really beginning to build a Dhamma Vihara to dwell in. While in this very body with its sense faculties and so forth, within this, internally, carefully sustaining it, we build a Vihara, a Dhamma Vihara body is, is carefully attended to. Not as an external, you know, thing that we, we seek delight in, but just as a form that's subject to decay, degeneration, death. That's the external message in one sense, as it's in the suttas. Yeah. You could also say it's it's um, we're aware of the bodies of others doing the same kind of thing. So we're not kind of drawn out into fascination. And internally, one begins to sense of something beautiful in here. There's a calming vitality. There's a nourishing sense. There's a ease that comes within this. So, you know, this is the establishments. Mm-hmm. And so that's contained, that's held. And similarly, well, you know, feeling associated with sense, sense gratification is obviously extremely pleasant. We find it's rather a brief burning flash 
that agitates and stirs. And there's a kind of feeling that occurs from calming, um, distilling, um, loving kindness, um, clarity. There's another feeling that actually doesn't burn, warms, sustains. So through that attention, internally, externally, and moderating, you're finding, yeah, that's, that's how you build the boundaries of your vihara and how you nourish what's within it. And this process then bears fruit. You've built that, you've generated that, however you want to put it, and these qualities are beginning to ripen and there's an attraction to them and a gladness that moves on. So this is all about the nutriment, what you feed on, and how that has this generative effect. Uh, Within the container, the womb, of care for attention, certain qualities gestate and come to fruition and ripeness. So it's putting the sense of our effort, I would suggest, in in a good perspective. Effort, energy, is a paramount quality in practice. It's important to know that you're not climbing up the wrong mountain (laughs) or paddling a boat on dry land. (laughs) No matter how hard you flail around in that boat if it's on dry land it's not going to go very far when you're putting it in the water even a little bit of paddling will take it along and as times when you get in the rapids you've got to use that paddle pretty dexterously and with firmness when you get in the white water you get in the blue water just a little bit of cruising will do so it's a moderating effort yeah and there's times when you just really have to resist and take a stand against passion and hatred and despair and find skillful means to pull out of it but the um, this is the contribution of right effort contributory factor but the feeding and the nourishment comes from what right effort allows which is you sit in the right place and you take in the right input that's what causes the growth You put right effort into sustaining your attention on skillful phenomena, protecting yourself against harmful influences. That takes effort. You sustain it, you make a firm effort with that. But it's those qualities themselves that give rise to the fruition, not the effort alone. I'll last them. This is from the 46th book of the Collected Discourses and the 51st Sutta. I can write these references down, look at, consider, because I've only given you brief extracts. So again, the Buddha uses the image of nutriment. 
once he got on to a particular metaphor or theme, he, he milked it. He made good use of it. So this is one he seemed to have come across that he felt was useful. Um, so he talks about nutriment for the hindrances. What is the nutriment for the arising of unarisen sensual desire? The expansion of arisen sensual desire. There is because the sign of the attractive or the beautiful frequently giving careless attention to it or superficial attention to it is nourishing sense desire. Then there's nourishing ill will, a sign of that which is irritating, repugnant, annoying. People translate this word differently. Patiga, that which disturbs, bothers. Frequently giving superficial attention to it, it increases. Sloth torpor, which is a classic dyad. You never see one of them alone. They always come up the two of them. Sloth torpor. <laughs> Strange words. So here, discontent, arati, sometimes translated as boredom, grumpiness, negativity, can't be bothered. Yeah, discontented, bored, fed up state of mind, giving attention to that. Lethargy can't be bothered. Um, Lazy stretching, I suppose this refers to a kind of languid state. Drowsiness after the meals, sluggishness of mind, mind can't be bothered. Frequently given superficial attention to these nourishes, Sloth torpor, it's a kind of apathy and lethargy, can't be bothered, and also there's no zest in the chitta, there's no zest, there's no sharpness. Mm. So giving superficial attention to these facts or features. Uh, Restlessness and remorse, or worry and flurry, or agitation, mental agitation, restlessness, Um, unsettledness, giving careless attention, superficial attention to the unsettledness of mind. The mind is not settled. Giving careless attention to it, superficial attention to it, causes it to flourish. And superficial attention to um, the basis of doubt or uncertainty, that also nourishes them. So then he talks about, alternatively, it says quite a lot actually, about the enlightenment factors, but just in terms of those hindrances, the denourishment that prevents it, he picks up the sign of the unattractive, frequently giving deep attention to it, the unattractive, that which does not attract. Helps the mind to let go of sense desire, or that sense desire trigger to be turned off. So what is the unattractive? Well, as I said in various ways, this is seen as organic material, such as food, human bodies, um, organic material. We begin to remember this is subject to decay. Decay, decay as it rots. It breaks down. 
that's its nature. And then if you give deep attention to that, you begin to recognize what actually is the sense desire based upon. Say in food, it's perhaps upon the the sign that reminds us, says this is attractive, this is wonderful, this will make you feel good. It's quite a brief glitter. And if you notice as you eat food, then that glitter fades out quite quickly. Um, so it's often a, just a visual interpretation or just a few moments of taste uh, that really hit and the mind loses its deep attention to the nature of food and the purpose of food, which is to nourish us. Uh, human bodies, we see perhaps shape. We see shape can be attractive. Shape is, is very mirage-like, isn't it? You know, shape where we see texture, skin texture, smooth or whatever. And it, it's the perception of that will be comforting, delighting, stimulating. It's not the body itself. It's this superficial attention which seizes and interprets certain features that actually are not innate. Shape of body changes. You just stretch it and it changes shape. You know? So certainly when you're, you're, people are advertising bodies, they generally have to pose them in a certain way you know, to make them look more interesting shape, like you pose somewhere or another, you know, or you glisten up something, or you powder something, or then you get the photographs and get, get you know, wipe out the little wrinkles and blemishes. So it's very constructed, and it's essentially superficial shape and uh, inferred texture, visual. And you actually put that aside, the body is just sort of like meat and bones and skin and hair sticking out one bit here and there and you know like what's the big deal <laughs> uh, and so it's, it's this re- kind of real just that coming out of that superficial quality something more deep and then deeper still you remember you recognize well it's going to change for sure um, and where will this impulse of senses are take me? Uh, kind of flare, heedlessness, recklessness. Chitta will be inflamed, reckless, heedless. You know, there's <laughs> about to be suffering and stress in there somewhere. And perhaps even, you know, unskillful conduct, sexual abuse, um, you know, obsessive attitudes. And they're obsessive because they never get fulfilled. But we keep pushing the same button. Or the unaware mind keeps pushing the same button, thinking, that one didn't fulfill me, but the next one will. (laughs) Push the button. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't actually happen. It doesn't get satisfied. Nothing wrong with you, just it doesn't get satisfied. Oh. And then what do you do with that? The sign of the beautiful. Well, the sign of the beautiful is the sign of the developed quality of loving kindness. It's the sign of the beautiful. This is where it does get fulfilled. 
cosmic kind of glowing radiant quality which we can project onto superficial things gets fulfilled here in the sphere of the beautiful the domain of loving kindness or inorganic things clothes, cars, machines glistening, efficient bright, so forth we remember in three years time this will be on the scrap heap somewhere this will be in a dumpster (laughs) it will be outdated and it will probably require constant attention to keep it in good shape do I want another one of these? do I need it? and certainly as much as one you know pushes away you have to have something also to pull towards and these inner qualities of calm and discernment and contentment and as I suggest goodwill warm heart give the chitta somewhere else to turn to if there's nowhere else to turn to we just get set in a kind of a nihilist program annihilationist program reject, 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 reject but what do you actually affirm? there's the twofold kinds of effort to turn towards it was beautiful pick it up, dwell in it Ill will, that which irritates, disappoints, frustrates, causes negativity to arise. Yeah. Mm. It's a rough, chafing experience. Feel constrained by, bound by, oppressed by, stabbed by. Mm. And when when we experience that, is because of them, or that, or <laughs> that which prevented me, or that which didn't go my way, or that which was I felt dismayed by, or disappointed, or hurt by. It's that's fault, and that's that's one way of looking at it, and it's as a truth to it. But when we contemplate how this experience can be internalized and remembered. And, and also become a determining factor where one holds grudges, you know, feels, you know, in a world which we've experienced as hostile, we begin to form, be formed by that ill will into negative behavior, holding grudges, caricaturing people, uh, feeling life is just miserable, and your heart is held in that, internalized by that. This is through careless attention. <laughs> There are things that we find painful, uncomfortable, this is true. Uh, Giving careful attention, deep attention, this is something to be mm, held carefully. And the quality here that supports the disappearance of this is, again, heartfulness. Uh, goodwill and of course uh, compassion karuna which is said to 
cause the dissolution of resistance impressions. It's rather tangled language, but those kind of internalized resistances, those boundaries, those wincing places, those places in us we go, no, not him, oh no, not her, oh no, not them, no, you know, just that, you know, the quality of, we have to accept the presence of the uncomfortable (laughs) internally. This doesn't mean that we don't do anything about it externally, but the main point is to free one's heart from this grip of resentment. So the heart is then full and rich. Then we might do things that are clear and useful in a world of conflicting people and situations. Which is coming from resentment and anger. It doesn't, it's understandable, but it doesn't really work. And we're still left with that trace internally. Compassion, one feature of it is it, it's able to accept the presence of the hurt. It's almost interested in it. It's the, it's the medicine that moves towards the wound. Heartfulness. And uh, rather than just conjure up the principle as an idea, which is a lovely idea, practice is just beginning to direct heartfulness towards these hurt places. And because they have a lot of reactivity to them, you know, using the body energy to sustain an open rather than contracted impression, breathe through it and begin to, you know, no longer... Uh, agitate and react around the uncomfortable. We don't react around it, then its internal activity ceases. The internal activity ceases, the bearing of it, the sustained scar of it begins to wash away. Mm. Quality of... um, sleepiness and dullness discontent RRT puts that to the fore in this um, presentation rather than just having had a long day you know it's 10 o'clock at night I'm feeling tired he doesn't put that to the fore he puts discontent interesting RRT Because I suppose what we're looking at here, rather than just the limitations of one's bodily energy, something more mental, which is, "Ah, I can't be bothered, what the hell, (laughs) so hot, it's kind of, this is the arati. And the renowned antidote for arati is called mudita, which is a rejoicing quality. So when you get to that mental sense of uh, throwing the towel, what's the point? Wasn't a waste of time. You know, who cares anyway? This RRT quality 
which makes one indolent, ah, you know, just do something else instead. Just rejoicing, remembering and bringing into mind the skillful, the other one has acted upon, or the skillfulness you've seen in others, be inspired by others. Uplifted. Yes, you know. And then this quality of, of indifference or discontent, which as it takes hold, very much becomes me, forms me, shapes me, actually limits me. It closes me down. My heart is shut down by that stuff. You know, I want to shake that off. It doesn't mean I've got to have more vigor, physical vigor than I do have, but I could at least you know, shake off the mental, internalized apathy. Say, okay, I feel tired, I feel sleepy. Let's get interested in that. What happens in the skin, around the eyes, the back, perhaps some walking or some standing. It's just to find a, a place of feeling okay with that. Not having to feel bright and zingy, but not feeling negative, grumpy and fed up because of the state of the body. I think this is really important. Because all we all get tired, I get tired. Every day I get tired. I don't expect not to get tired. <laughs> it doesn't just happen at certain, you know, you're allowed to get tired at 11 o'clock. No, get, sometimes I get tired at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, what are you going to do? And just okay, just sit with that and take a few breaths and stop feeling like it's the end of the world and I'm pathetic and you know, feels like this now. Okay. And then what's helpful, just maybe just open the eyes and don't expect a lot of vigour, but just can we be there with a diminished energy state without internalizing that? Mm. I'm mindful, I'm aware of it. Mm. So I, I must admit, you know, I get tired and sometimes I just sit in a chair. I just sit there and then look out the window. Not looking at anything particular, just opening. You know, and something says, oh, you should be meditating, mindfulness of breathing, do some walking. <laughs> just shut up, will you? I'm doing... <laughs> yeah, it's kind of... Come on, get going, get going. Come on, come on, Ajahn, come, come, come on, get some samadhi going. Just... Give me a break, you know, just just being here is enough right now. Just be there, just settle and turn the activity down, but you're still awake, and then you turn the activity down, the system does refresh and replenish, and then maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour or so, it begins to come up again. So, but that means that one's also appreciating just the very quality of inner wakefulness, which isn't dependent upon physical energy. There is an interested alertness to even a sense of low energy, how that happens, the nature of it, you know, the understanding this is the nature of the conditioned realm, everybody gets this, and, you know, we can rise up. And sometimes just even remembering in that in those states, just people one feels admiration for 
love for, concern for, keeping the heart gently willing to be present around skillful things does cause the heart to lift and energy will return. Restlessness. Mm. Giving careful attention, careful attention to the unsettledness of the mind. Well, if the mind is directed outwards, it can't be anything but unsettled, can it? Because, <laughs> you know, the things are happening at home and that needs fixing and so and so and so and so. And then my niece is like that and that probably give attention to that. And then, I remember that's running out. I better get another one of those. There's this terrible situation happening in that country and you know, what am I going to do in just agitation, dealing with one's domestic affairs, one's family relationships, one's financial situation, body and so forth. You just give attention to it carelessly and it just seems like such a lot to do. Yeah. The mind is unsettled. Yeah. So in the, in the monastery we have meetings, I think we cut it down to one day a week because uh, <laughs> they have a certain challenging aspect to them. <laughs> they're called the business meetings, you know. And you kind of sit there, oh, here we go. And then they present their to-do lists. You know, so and so we need, this has got to be chopped and that's got to be fixed. Who is doing the dishes today? And then so and so prepare a room because this guest's coming. There's a school group coming on Wednesday and so and so. Who's going? So and so's going to the dentist. Who's going to drive a car? Get him to the dentist on time and so and so. And then this is he. Oh, get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, half an hour of this, you're feeling totally frazzled. But actually, all that's happened is you've sat in a room where somebody's spoken some words. What was what? So, <laughs> and you got triggered by it all. Yeah. You're overwhelmed. You haven't done anything. <laughs> Just sat there and listened. So, my advice in in such situations, <laughs> I talked. About, I mentioned it. Be like a cat. Cat's lying in the dying down, he's got one ear cocked. <laughs> he doesn't jump up every time, he's got one ear cocked. The rest of it's just lying there, going, this will pass, this will pass. <laughs> and then what's the particular bit that I want to deal with? The first thing to deal with is this irritation in my mind. <laughs> Relax that, you know. This is whoever we are, things have to be done, you know. And then somebody decides they want to get into a detail. You know, oh no, this monk feels he's got a real issue to make about the colour, the colour that he wants to paint the shrine room. He doesn't want it vanilla, he wants it cream. (laughs) (laughs) We had had four meetings on whether the shower room window should be opened or shut. (laughs) Because if you open it, what happens is the cool air comes in and you get condensation on the on the ceiling and you get mould, you see. 
So the people who want it shut, they shut it and put the fan on. And the people who don't like to hear the sound of the fan want to say, just open the window. So eventually we just, then you see in the summertime, it's because it's warm, you don't get the condensation. So we had, eventually after four meetings, we say from October until July it's closed, July until October it's open. It's hard to have had four meetings on this topic. When this topic comes up, you think, oh no. <laughs> I didn't come here to learn about windows or shower rooms. No, you didn't. But you did come here to learn about irritation, <laughs> restlessness, <laughs> agitation. So just listen to that. And then where is the evenness of mind? Equanimity. That's where the mind is made even. That's what it means. Evenness of mind means equanimity. That's what it means. It means the mind, you refer to that quality. The mind can be just even with these phenomena jumping around on top of it. And the mind remains even with phenomena jumping around on top of it. I sometimes like this to being like a dog, an old dog, and you lie down. And a kid's come and they start pulling your ears, you just lie there. The kids come around and start digging your ribs, you just lie there. <laughs> you realise they'll get fed up and go away sooner or later, you just lie there, play dead, and then eventually <laughs> they go off and play with something else. <laughs> you'll pick up. Except you're not dead, you're, you're sensing that, and you're working with that, and you realise, okay, for this person that is an issue, He's got a point, I guess, yeah. It's not my issue, but mm-hmm, okay, well, good luck, work with it. It's not for me, but fine. When you find that evenness of mind and the irritation, and the hurry up, get me out of here, that stops. You think, I can be here forever. <laughs> Life is an endless business meeting. <laughs> If people talk about things I'm not interested in at all. Ah, good practice, good practice. Upeka. <laughs> so you feed that through careful attention, tending to what's significant, what's useful, what's profitable. Doubt. Doubt really is just not recognizing the citta for what it is. So as doubt arises whenever one is trying to form a concept or an idea, where you're at, where you've been, how long, whether you're the right thing, the wrong thing, who's got it, who doesn't, and what you should do, whether you should become this or do that, or go here or go there, and you're you're not going to find an answer in that. But we're going to find in that is flurry, doubt, and lack of ground. So what's the remedy for that? Find where the ground is. Where's that? That's the citta. So these other fruitions and cultivations remind you of the potency and the power of the citta against all these reflexes and reactions and external conditions. You realize the power of that possibility to transform suffering into happiness you know that that's what I trust my thinking mind yeah just 
you know, don't put attention into it. Find out where your center is, where your ground is, where your jitta really can rest. And then things will become clear. What is needed isn't an answer to doubt. What is needed is careful attention, deep attention. What is needed is not more speculative views and opinions, but mindfulness, clear comprehension, restraint of the faculties, that's needed. Mm. What is needed is not having another this and that, this is better or that or better, but you should try this or the other. What is needed is joy, happiness, fulfillment in the citta. Then these stuff begins to just fade out. The one who has transcended doubt has one who has come to the citta, dwelt in the citta, confidence in the citta, has entered the stream and there's no going back. So let's um, take some time for direct practice. We have this wonderful opportunity. Um, Blessings.